1 Kings 11. I'm just going to read verse 1 and then you can be seated. I'll read verses 2 through 9 after you're seated. 1 Kings 11 and 1 from the Amplified Classic. 1 Kings 11 and 1. One of the most fascinating people in the Word of God is Solomon. And we're going to be taking a look at his life. How powerful it was. How tragic it was. In its end, it is said that it took Israel over 300 years to recover from what Solomon did in his old age. Not in his youth, but in his old age. He finally broke under the weight of a strategy that the enemy employed against him. And God wants to expose that strategy so that it has no power over your life so that it falls haplessly and helplessly to the ground before you and so that it cannot do to you what it did to Solomon. 1 Kings 11 and 1, but King Solomon defiantly loved many foreign women. The daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites and the Sidonians and Hittites. King Solomon defiantly loved many foreign women. I'll read the, the rest after you are seated and after we pray. Can you join with me? Lord Jesus, we stand here surrendered completely to your sovereignty. For you are the Lord God of hosts. We pray that you anoint us with your unction as never before. For your word is the only thing that matters. That you would anoint us to speak and declare and release your mind over this congregation at this time. At this particular space that we find ourselves in in human history. Let us know the word of the Lord. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Let us be changed by the word of the Lord. Let your glory fill this house. Let your angels be loose to minister to the heirs of salvation. And let them be loose, O oh God, to war against those that stand against your will. In your holiness. In your kingdom. By the power of your name, we speak it is done. And everyone say, in Jesus' name. You can clap your hands into the Lord as you're seated. If you would, be so kind. Thank you for your worship. Thank you for standing for the reading of the word of the Lord. Thank you, worship team, for doing a wonderful job. Thank you, God, for keeping the power on in this great state of Texas. I'm thankful for that. ERCOT took a lot of heat last year. I think we should applaud them this year. They got their stuff together, and they did everything that they said they would do, and we never came close to overwhelming the Texas grid, and so very thankful for that. Love the cold, don't like the ice. So Solomon is one of my favorite people, and I want to speak to you this morning from this simple entitled thought, the autopsy of an analytical mind. The autopsy of an analytical mind. What Solomon asked for was so powerful and so amazing, and what happened to him was so tragic and so telling. It all could have very easily been avoided just with some basic morality. We've said this before, especially in our purity series, but wouldn't it be amazing if just men in the world could embrace morality? What industries would be shut down and shuttered forever if men just embraced morality? Cabarets would be shut down. Human trafficking would be shut down. Many websites would be shut down if men just could embrace morality. Holiness. None of us are perfect. But 
if we could just embrace it and allow it to lead us, what could change? What would the world look like if only half of its population would just embrace the holiness of God? It would stop many problems. It would shut down many nefarious and sinister industries. It would do so much good in the world today if we could just embrace morality. Solomon could have stopped his fall at any moment by just embracing morality, by doing what he knew was right, by stepping out of the moment when he was so deluded and mesmerized by the material and the sensual, just pulling himself out of that tractor beam of chaos and error. Had he just separated himself from the spirit of error just for a moment, he could have saved Israel 300 years of healing and recovery. The decisions that we make, men, are not just about us, but about future generations and what they will come to call normal. Because of this, future generations learn to live with a normal split kingdom. It's sad. It's tragic. Let's read on. Verse 2. These people, these foreign women that Solomon defiantly clung to in love. Verse 2 says, They were of the very nations of whom the Lord said to the Israelites, You shall not mingle with them. Why? Not because of their ethnicity, because of their culture. Because of a culture of idolatry and hedonism and paganism. He's saying, I don't need you to fellowship what I can't fellowship. I need you to separate yourself from things that war against my nature. I need you to back away from things that are inimical to my ways and my holiness. And I don't need you marrying into things that have openly declared war against me and my ways. Gotta be careful what you join yourself to, be careful what you empower. It says, You shall not mingle with them. Neither shall they mingle with you. For surely, that sounds rather specific, for surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Yet Solomon clung to these in love. Verse 3 says he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart from God. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect, complete, and whole with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Interesting. David's got some darkness in his resume too. But David understood your presence is my identity. And when David messed up, he didn't blame anybody but himself. He said, I've sinned against you and you alone. Take the palace, take the throne, take the sword, take the notoriety, take my harp, take the fame, but take not your presence from me. If I don't have your presence, I have nothing. I've lost it all. A palace without the presence is a cold and deadly place. Ask Saul and his servants. You don't want to be in a presenceless palace. You don't want to be in a position of power, separated and divorced from the presence of Almighty God. It's a deadly thing. It's a dangerous thing to occupy such a spiritual space. He said, your heart isn't complete and whole like David's was. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abominable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as David his father did. 
It's about the fullness of your pursuit. Not a fractured pursuit, but the fullness of your pursuit. If I'm just chasing him Sunday and chasing him Wednesday for a high as presence gives me, that's not the fullness of my pursuit. I need to be chasing him Monday just like I am on Sunday and Tuesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. He said, you're broken and you're fractured because you didn't come after me in fullness. David was after the heart of God. Verse 7 says, Then Solomon built a high place for Hemosh, the abominable idol of Moab. Understand that every one of these idols are connected to a demonic spirit. Understand that. I don't have time to go in that, but just trust me, it's true. They didn't just draw up cartoons that they envisioned. These things are connected to very specific demonic powers and spirits. I'll share with you a very quick story to verify or solidify that claim quickly. I was in India. I was praying in Hyderabad, India, in our hotel room prior to a crusade of thousands of people that we were preaching to, my friend Ken Cook and I. It was the first night of the crusade. God did many miracles that night. But in our hotel room, as we're praying, I get this heavy, heavy, heavy feeling, oppressively heavy, just incredibly nasty spirit. I open my eyes as I'm praying, and standing in our room, I see a vision of this bodied creature with the head of a bull, longhorn bull. And so I just keep praying. I don't stop anybody, I don't tell anybody, I just keep praying. Later on the way to the crusade, I asked one of the brothers from India if he had ever seen anything like that. He said, yes. He said, uh, it is an idol. And later, in that city, they had built a statue, we saw it, that looked exactly like what I saw in our hotel room. I'd never seen it before in my life. And he said, this is the patron demon of this area, this city. It looked exactly like what I saw, what came to oppose us. So please understand, when he builds a statue, he's erecting something that is directly connected to something very dark and evil in the spirit realm. He's choosing to connect and empower to things that have declared war against Almighty God. A hopeless war that has no chance of success, but it is a war nonetheless because God has just simply allowed it to continue before crushing them for eternity. And so he puts up these things and he's doing this and it's really tainting and damaging the spirit realm of Israel. So it's not just what he's doing, it's where he's doing it. It makes it worse. And he did so for all of his foreign wives. How many foreign wives did he have? A lot. So this is a myriad level event. It's going on and on and on. Multiple, a multiplicity of idols. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord. How many of you know it's, God is slow to anger, but he can become angry. It's important to note that. It is possible to anger him. Defiance continually, after wave after mercy and wave after mercy, continual defiance, even after being shown mercy, even after being shown great kindness, continual defiance angers God. He put up with it in Solomon. He, put up, he puts up with it in a lot of us. But eventually, there comes a time he gets angry. Now what are you going to do? Because if God is angry, it's a serious situation. And so he's angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord who loved him, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice 
You've seen the glory of God, Solomon. You've seen it fill the temple so thick and mighty that the people, the priests, could not even continue their service because they couldn't see. You've seen the glory of God. You've seen the goodness of God. You've been given the mercy and grace of God. You and your mother, Bathsheba. You've both seen his mercy and grace, and yet you continue to defy him. By putting up these things that are at war with him. So we have to ask ourselves the question because Jesus said of Solomon, and I love this, Jesus remembers him at his height, not at his low moment. When he mentions Solomon, he brings up his prime. He doesn't bring up what happened in his older days because God is merciful and kind and good. So he brings up when he was arrayed in his glory and his grandeur and splendor and he looked so magnanimous and beautiful and powerful, that's what he brings up. He said there's nobody else like Solomon. Not before, not since, not until Jesus. He said there will be nobody like him again. Not exactly like him. So if you have someone with such a powerful gift a supernaturally imparted gift it wasn't because of his education he didn't bring somebody he's not Alexander the Great educated by Aristotle himself he's very young when he begins to reign he did not have the benefit of an extensive education God gave him his wisdom God gave him his knowledge God gave him his wealth and riches God did by grace not because he deserved it. He did it by grace. So how do you corrupt an intellectual giant? How do you topple a man God saturated with divine wisdom? How do you assassinate an analytical genius, master strategist, and king who was anointed by God to reign over Israel? The Lord spoke to me. This is how. Cognitive dissonance and duplicity. That's how. Dissonance and duplicity. Dissonance and duplicity. He said you destroy his mind from within by splitting it with duplicity and dissonance. The devil couldn't make him forget everything that God had shown him. So he made sure he just wouldn't live what he had come to know. He said, I can't stop God from blessing you. I can't stop God from showing you everything he's going to show you. I can't stop him from making your IQ over 200. I can't stop that. But here's what I can try to do. I can make you forget how to live it. Because I mesmerize you with the flesh, with wealth, with riches, with sensual things and nonsense. I just make sure you don't live what you know and then I don't have to worry about what you know hurting me. If I can keep you in a space where you just don't live it, you're of no threat to the enemy. None at all. Divine wisdom is what properly allocates knowledge they're different things. You can have the knowledge, but you don't have the wisdom to know what to do with the knowledge. And you can misappropriate the knowledge because you're not in wisdom. You can have a word from God, but not the wisdom to release the word. And you can mess it up because you had the knowledge, but you didn't have the wisdom. And so God gave him wisdom so that the knowledge ended up unlocking secrets and mysteries. It's a combination. Without the wisdom of God, somebody that's knowledgeable is dangerous. Can cause more harm than good. Because they don't know, I know this from God, but I'm not supposed to speak it now. So they just come in there and just bam, just drop everything they know. That's not wisdom. That's not always edifying. You need wisdom. It's divine wisdom that properly allocates knowledge. If the enemy can cause us to curse ourselves, doctrine of Balaam, 
If he can cause us to curse ourselves and then get us separated from our deep connection to the Spirit of God, then knowledge alone cannot threaten him. Because he's got knowledge too. He's seen some stuff we haven't seen on this side of eternity. He was in heaven. Devils know the doctrine probably better than you. But guess what? They don't live it. So if I can know about him, but I don't live or walk like him, I've become like a devil and not like God. I've embraced a duplicity and the dissonance that is devilish because it comes straight from devils themselves. Because that's their modus operandi. That's how they live. That's how they operate and function. They know more than you, but they refuse to live any of it. That's the danger of knowledge without wisdom. That's the danger of being separated from the spirit of the living God. When the theology remains theoretical, when beliefs never become behavior, they have no effect in the spirit realm to threaten the darkness that comes against us. That's cognitive dissonance. I know, but I do not do it. I don't live it. The Lord gave me Ezekiel 33 not long into my ministry. In Ezekiel 33, it literally and clearly says, they love to hear you, you're like a song to them, but they never do anything I send you to say. They don't listen. So don't expect too many of them to. They don't listen. Now why would God tell somebody that? Why would God tell the prophet, hey, they love you, I mean they love to hear you, but nobody's doing anything that I'm telling you to say to them. At first glance, and at your initial impulse would be, that, that's kind of mean, God. I mean, you're literally telling the guy he's ineffective. And God said, no, this is why I told Ezekiel, and this is why I'm telling you. You don't get your value from their response. You get your value from releasing the word that I gave you. You don't base how you're doing on how they're responding. You base how you're doing on, did you know me? Did you get it from me? And did you release it as I gave it to you? I judge you, said God, for the release of the word, not the response to the word. So he's really doing a great kindness to Ezekiel. He's saying, you just stay with me and you don't worry about what they do. You keep speaking. They like you. But as he says in the first two chapters, set your face like a flint against them and declare my word because they're not your value. They're not your source. I am. And I'm with you. It's a kindness. It's a beautiful thing. We cannot allow the kingdom culture vision to die because culture can only exist when beliefs become behavior. If there is no belief becoming behavior, you don't have culture. You have a theory on a chalkboard. You don't have anything else that's real. And a lot of things can sound good on a chalkboard, but in actuality, they're trash in a dumpster fire, like communism. Has it ever worked anywhere it's been tried? No. But it looks good on a chalkboard. It's theoretical. But when it comes off the chalkboard, it falls apart and turns back into the That's what happens. So until it becomes behavior, until it's driving my decisions and my thoughts, I'm not even in a kingdom culture. Because I know it, but I do not live it. When the theology remains theoretical, and until beliefs become behavior, we have no effect in the spirit realm in our city to threaten darkness. Biggest enemy and problem. Our culture's biggest problem. This isn't just a one generation. 
This is on all of us. We're all contemporaries. One of the prophetic themes God shared with me concerning this year is deepening and doubling. He said, I want to deepen my body and double its effectiveness and impact. You can't double something unless it's already there. So it has to start with something you know. Something that's there. Something that is palpable, quantifiable. And then it explodes to what you could never imagine. That's how you double something. And the two words he was speaking in my spirit over and over is deeper and double. Deeper and double. He said, I want to blanket my people with those two things. Well, guess what? The enemy hears that. And the enemy's desire is to utterly derail the deepening and the doubling. How? By duplicity and dissonance. That's how. And the Lord has come to expose his plan today. Because an exposed plan loses its power and it loses its effectiveness. It wanted to stay concealed. It wanted to stay hidden. But God exposes it so he might destroy it. Because he has come to destroy the works of Satan. He has come to destroy the works of the devil. That's what he does. Duplicity and dissonance takes us right out just like seeing the waves and the wind and the sea took Peter from walking on top of the water to drowning underneath it. Duplicity and dissonance take us right out of doubling and deepening every time. Our lives at home, everyone hear me, and I'm talking to myself first. Our lives at home and in private must match our public declarations as closely as possible. All of us can do better with that. Say, I can do better with that. I'm saying it, you're saying it. All of us are eligible to do better in this department and area. You don't have to be a prophet to know that. All of us will do better, can do better, and by grace will become better in this department. All of us. But our public declarations in our private lives must match, find some symmetry, find some harmony, or there can rest upon us no spiritual authority. How do we know that? Because it's in the Bible. What did the scribes or what did the people that hear Jesus say about him and his words? They said this, you speak with authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. Well, I wonder why. Because he was the word he was speaking. He lived the word he was speaking. There was no dissonance in him. There was no duplicity in him. But when the Pharisees showed up, they taught well, but did not live it. Why are they called the synagogue of Satan, some of them? Not all of them, but some of them. Why are they compared to devils? Because of the dissonance and the duplicity. To know, to teach, but then to live something else. And so the people said, when Jesus, when this Jesus speaks, there is authority. My heart burns within me, someone said. Because he is what he says. He lives what he preaches. So authority rests upon him. But to the scribe and the Pharisee, it's theology and it's theoretical. It's not being released. They're not living it. And Jesus said, you're the synagogue of Satan, you're devils. Not because what you teach is wrong. Contrary, it's right. But you don't live it. Dissonance and duplicity, you do not live it. It's not what motivates you. Pride still motivates you. To be the best and have the highest seats at the conferences. To be known and shouted out. To be a celebrity. To be famous. To be known for having lots of followers. To have the best attire. Those are the things that drove them. You can't teach what they taught and then live like that. It doesn't add up. It doesn't add up. 
Solomon was distracted by these exotic women and exotic cultures because his ever-expanding mind, by default, gravitated to the next new thing to be understood and decrypted. Athens is one of the most analytical and cerebral cultures to ever live, the Greeks. We've lived there. We love it. It's beautiful. It's awesome. I love much of their culture. But what does it say in the book of Acts concerning the Athenians? They're always looking and they're always after some new thing. Very cerebral, very analytical, very intelligent, high IQ. Aristotle was very mesmerizingly intelligent. Alexander the Great, fascinating person. Plato, Socrates, it goes on and on. Fascinating people. But they're always after the new thing. What was so appealing about these foreign things, these foreign cultures, these foreign gods, and their attire, and their style, and their jewelry, and the things they would wear, and the way they looked? It was new. And so he wanted to understand it. He was drawn to it. But not everything new is for you. I need you to tell your neighbor that right now. Not everything new is for you. The age-old adage. It's not always greener on the other side. Everything that glitters and glistens isn't gold. Not everything that is new is really for you. Some of it's new and it's coming after you. It's coming against you. It wants to destroy you. It wants to wreck your marriage and wreck your emotional health and wreck your body. It doesn't love you. Not everything that's new is for you. Solomon, just like Samson, got what he wanted, but he lost what he had. To quote the old preacher, he got what he wanted, but he lost what he had. If you get what you want right now, I want you to envision what's something you really want right now. If you get what you want, will you lose what you have? I need you to ask yourself that. If you get what you want, will you lose what you have? I told you before about the vision of the king of Sodom coming to me and my friend Ken Cook. And he pulled up in a limousine, a stretch Rolls Royce. It was beautiful. He took us to this elaborate, beautiful hotel. Marble, gold, everything was absolutely incredible. It was minimalistic, top of the line. There were Lamborghinis, there were Ferraris, there were beautiful cars. Had I had the vision now, there'd have been a Bugatti, Veron, I'm sure, there. Everything you can imagine, people were dressed so nice. Everyone looking like James Bond. Everyone dressed, Armani suits, Gucci, everything you can imagine. And he said, welcome. Welcome to our network. And come over here, I want to show you something. And he walked us through a room, and there was a series of paintings, and it was the gospel. And I saw different series of paintings. When I got to the cross, and I got to the crucifixion, there was no blood, there were no nails, there was no spear, there was no crown of thorns. He was just gently tied to the cross. And I stopped, and I said, sir, that's not right. He said, then forget about that. Just come on and look at all this other stuff. What are you just stopping over one painting for? It's just one thing. Why are you obsessing over that? Try to make me feel stupid about it. I said, well, because it's not right. It's inaccurate. He suffered for this. He volunteered for the most unjust death in human history so that I could know his name why I'm obsessing over it because it's inaccurate and the more I begin to protest I begin to look around and the gold was fake and the marble was fake and the cars were replicas plastic shells it wasn't real it was synthetic everything began to fall apart he looked old and tattered and disgusting his suit began to change his face began and God said son don't ever bring a message to my people that's devoid of sacrifice (laughs) 
He said, who came to you in the night was the king of Sodom. He comes to many ministries as they begin to develop. And he offers them money for a simpler message. He offers them notoriety and fame. Bigger crowds and stadiums and places. If you'll just change one thing. If you just won't live it. You can know about it. I can't take the revelation of the oneness of God away from you. I can't take a revelation of holiness from you. I can't take a revelation of Acts 2.38 away from you. But can you just stop preaching it? Can you just back off a little bit? Can you stop pressing people to live holy and forgive each other and love each other and push and do the hard work of unity? Can you just change the message a little bit? Sadly, Solomon was far too easily convinced just by a pretty face. A lot of pretty faces. And it changed everything. He vacated the sacred tenets of the truth that he knew to embrace what looked good and appealing on the surface. This journey has a tragically telling conclusion because Solomon got what could be seen, the wives, the notoriety, even more riches, access to greater kingdoms and people, the knowledge of their culture, which is really, really what he was after. He got what could be seen and then he promptly lost his grasp on the unseen realm that he had walked in for so long. That's the trade. I'll give you what can be seen if you surrender what cannot be seen. Surrender the power of the unseen realm. Surrender the power of submission to the word of God. Surrender the power of holiness that cannot be seen. And I'll give you what can be counted and quantified and seen. What will cause you to look successful. I'll give it to you. The enemy will always trade the alleged opulence of the seen world if you'll just let go of the unseen, which is the pillar of reality, as Hebrews 11 and 3 tells us, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So you know what you're giving up? Reality. You're giving up power. You're giving up truth. You're giving up the foundation of everything that was created. When you surrender your walk with God. But if you could speak to Solomon before he made these decisions. You say, think back, Solomon, to the grace that made you. You didn't ask for money. You didn't ask for riches, fame, or long life, the seen realm. You asked for a discerning spirit and an understanding heart that you might know him and lead his people to him. You know, the greatest thing that can be said about you is that as they got to know you, they got closer to him. Do you know the greatest thing you can release in somebody else's life? A greater revelation of who he is so that they can see his love in your eyes. They can see his grace through your loving actions in their life. There's nothing greater you can give someone. Think back. Solomon, because you asked for the unseen and he gave it to you. And he said you could have the other stuff too because it by itself is not evil. But you allowed it to occupy a space that is sacred that only he can occupy. And it changed everything. Sometimes in order to cradle the contemporary, we have to drop the ancient. That's what the enemy wants. I'll give you the contemporary definition of success if you'll drop this ancient book of Acts apostolic stuff. If you'll just put it down and put it to the side. It's antiquated. It's boomer stuff. It's for another time and another generation. No, my friend, it's timeless, tested truth. 
and we will not stop preaching it and we will not stop living it. We will not stop. We will never make the trade with the king of Sodom. We will declare the word of the Lord. Sometimes what the enemy wants you to do, you can have the contemporary, but you got to drop the ancient. It's exactly what he did with Jesus. If you'll just worship me, I'll give you all the stuff that you can see. The seen for the unseen. Bad trade. Horrendous trade. God spoke this morning that many of us need nothing new. We need to simply do what we know. Do what you know. That's how Solomon got separated. He stopped doing what he knew was right. He stopped living what he knew. God is saying, stop looking for something new and fall back in love with what you know. Because your next dimension of spiritual breakthrough is awaiting you on the other side of walking in the last thing he told you. If you don't have anything else from him, do the last thing he told you. Do what you know. Obsess over what you know he said and what you know is right. Do that. Focus on what is known and what you know. Because new isn't something you need to discover right now, possibly. The known is what you need to cling to and operate in right now. What you know. You know to be a worshiper. You know to be and enter your prayer chamber. You know to love your neighbor. You know to go and make disciples. You know to teach Bible studies. You know to be faithful to church. You know to seek unity with your brother and sister. Focus on what you know. Do what you know. When the last thing remains undone, the next thing remains hidden. That's how it works. I'm going to say that again. When the last thing he told you remains undone, the next thing remains hidden. You remember what he said a few weeks ago? He said, that's what, he, that's what he showed me. He said, Dyron, I have to leave so many people at the last level of spiritual development they think they're worthy of. And so I leave them there. Because to advance them at that point would kill them. It would absolutely destroy them because they think they've attained where they are by their own works. Or their years of service, or you've heard it all. And it's manifest in, well... You know, someone compliments you, and you say, well, you got to go through what I went through. And you just, that kills me, because you just took a moment to give glory to the grace of God, which is the real reason you're anywhere, and you chose to make that moment about what you've done, not what he's done. That kills me every single time. I understand we grow dimensionally. I understand we go through phases of spiritual development and growth. I understand we're all on different phases and levels of that. But when someone compliments you, please take that moment to, to give the glory to God. Because without His grace, you wouldn't have anything. Nothing. It's Him that did it. He gives the increase. God is challenging his body. And he, one, of the, one of the areas, not the only one, but one of the areas he wants to challenge us in is generosity. Can we be generous in a culture that is suspicious of everything and everyone? Can we be generous with affirmation? Can we be generous with grace? Can we be generous with love? And can we be generous with money? In a culture where everyone's offended simultaneously and everybody's a victim from every other thing. And where everything is out to get us. And everybody needs to be canceled. Can you be generous in that culture? God wants to know. 
Can we be generous with grace, generous with love, generous with patience, and generous with money? Generous with revelation. It kills me when a preacher says, I'll come preach for you, but my minimum fee is $2,500. The Bible does say, if you have freely received, you should freely give. Don't charge people for what you got by grace for free. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Generosity. Part of that is, can you preach for free? Mr. Preacher Man, because PBJ and I sure have quite a few times, actually. As evangelist, many times. It's not a big deal. It was an honor. It was an honor to do it. Can you be generous with what you have been given freely? What grace gave to you, can you be generous with grace gifts? Here's one thing, Malachi 3 and 10. Bring the whole tithe, tithe means tenth, into the storeroom that there may be food in my house. And watch this, key phrase. And test me now by this. Wow. We're going to find out why that is very rare. Test me now by this, said the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing that there shall be more than sufficiency. Malachi 3 and 10. Why is that odd? It's odd because generosity is the one place God says to test and try him. Because in Deuteronomy 6 and 16, it says this, you shall not test the Lord your God. It says specifically, don't try me. Don't test me. You know the song, try Jesus. Don't try me. Because I throw hands. Great song. But the Bible says, don't try Jesus. Deuteronomy 6, just read it for you in 16. You shall not test the Lord your God. But God said, I'm going to step in and put a loophole in my law and say, I want you to test me in generosity. I want you to try me in the tithe. I want you to see if you can outgive me. That's what he's saying. He's challenging us to outgive him. Think about that. Tithe and giving generosity is the one place God says to test and try him. Concerning the mystery and the revelation of generosity, he says, test me, try me, see if you can be more generous than I am. If you don't try what you know first, you're not going to walk into the unknown if you can't even do that. We have to pass the test of generosity, not just with money, but with time and affirmation, words of love, giving grace, giving patience, releasing ministry, releasing the gifts of the Spirit, releasing those things from God. We have to try Him. See if you can outgive Him. Make 2022 the year you try to outgive God. See if you can do it. Because you reap what you sow. If you need money and finance, you need to sow and plant some. Find somebody's life to sow into. Find somebody to be generous to. You got any farmers in the house? You grew up on a farm? You grew up in the country? My wife sure did. PBJ sure did. If you wanted to harvest a purple whole piece, and that's some good stuff, you don't plant squash and reap purple whole peas. You get what you sow. 
but you get it multiplied, doubled, and deepened. That's how you get it. So if you need a financial breakthrough, you find somebody to sow some finance into. It doesn't have to be $50,000. Sow what you have and watch God grow it. Watch him multiply it. That's how it works. That's how it works. We sowed an F-250 four-wheel drive into the life of an evangelist who needed it as we were moving to Singapore where we didn't need a vehicle at all. We get back. It's been a couple years. We're back in the States. Our car's falling apart. On a particular weekend, we had to have two rental cars because we had to be in two different places, right? So we got two rental cars. I got to go preach somewhere. Tamley's got stuff she has to do. So we have two rental cars. And that just feels awesome, throwing money away for a rental car. And we're at a birthday party, 80th birthday party for the precious nanny that just passed away, went on to be with the Lord. And this couple walks up to us and hands us the keys to a Mercedes C300 AMG and says, God told us to give you this car. That's grace. Definitely did not deserve that. But guess what God was doing? He was showing, you cannot be more generous than me. You sold an old truck, I gave you a Mercedes AMG. You cannot outgive me. Somebody needs to try that and receive this word. You need to try this week. See if you can outgive him. Be generous to somebody. Love somebody. Be patient with somebody that doesn't deserve it. Sow and see if you can outgive him. Just sow and see. But we got to focus on what we know. The journey into the unknowable and into unknowable abundance cannot begin until we do what we know. God blesses his principle. He blesses his law that he created. Some people get blessed because they give away so much money a year and they reap so much money and they don't even know God. It's an irrevocable principle of life among humanity. And it's a beautiful thing. But we've got to step out into what we know. If all you know is the next step, take the next step and then see what happens. Take it in faith. Take it knowing that he's going to show you the next one and then the next one and then the next one. That's how it happens. But we've got to get back to Solomon very quickly. Normalizing duplicity. Remember, duplicity and dissonance. Normalizing carnality. Blaming issues for ongoing unchecked flesh is the surest way to remain trapped in an endless loop of failure and prophetic paralysis. I feel like I need to elaborate on that. Normalizing issues, normalizing carnality, normalizing flesh that's unchecked, normalizing my dissonance, normalizing my duplicity, worst move ever. It can never become normal. Fight it with everything that you have. David kept tripping, but he didn't normalize it. He kept getting back up and saying, I've got to do better than this, man. I've got to stop. I've got to shake myself out of this. I've got to encourage myself in the Lord. I can't give in to depression. I can't give in to temptation. He kept shaking it off. He refused to normalize it. Solomon married it and normalized it. Big difference. What you normalize, you marry. See, we're just going to learn to live together. We're just going to learn to have this relationship with my struggle. I'm normalizing my addiction because I got issues. God doesn't want you living with issues. He doesn't want you living with depression 
I don't believe in a depressed apostolic. Fighting depression. I don't believe in a depressed apostolic. I do not believe that you can just normalize it and live with it and be okay. When depression showed up at my door in 2018, I told it this, we're fighting until one of us dies. We're going to fight. I will not live depressed. Don't say you're depressed. Say I'm fighting depression. Don't say you're addicted. Say I'm fighting an addiction. Don't say or claim you are some alternative lifestyle. Say I am fighting same-sex attraction. It's not who I am. It's not my identity. It does not get to define me. I will fight. You got to have a backbone in this thing. You got to fight some things that try to war for your identity. Fight it. Do not acquiesce. Do not bow down. Make it bow to you. Do not bow to it. Don't bow to anxiety. Don't bow to being neurotic. That's just me. I got issues. I can't do crowds. No, honey, you can do crowds. I'm introverted. This is killing me right now. I'm losing all energy. It's just the grace and anointing of the Lord that I'm standing up here talking to a group full of people because I'm an introvert. When I go home, I'm getting under a blanket. And I'm going to have to recover. Because I don't like talking in front of people. And so you fight. You don't just acquiesce. You don't bow to it. Same thing with the cancel culture mob. Don't bow. You do, you're dead. Don't bow to that nonsense. It's absolute lunacy. Don't bow to spiritual enemies. Do not show them your back. Set your face like a flint. Show them your fist. Show them your fighting stance. Show them your face. Say, I will fight you until the Lord delivers me. Can't normalize it. We get trapped in an endless loop of failure and prophetic paralysis when we normalize stuff because of issues. Well, I am this way because they did this to me or they did that to me or my parents did this to me or that to me. That's true. They did do that. And that's not your fault. But your response is your responsibility. And your response needs to be, I'm not going to be defined by this. I'm going to overcome it. I will live above it. It will not defeat me. I will fight against it. We might need counseling. That's okay. That's not a testament or a statement of weakness. The Bible says in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. One of the attributes of God in Isaiah 9 and 6 is that he is a wonderful counselor, mighty God. He's the best counselor you'll ever have. So yeah, you might need counseling. That's all right. But you absolutely need an altar. You might need counseling, but you absolutely need an altar. You need a prayer life. You need a prayer chamber. You need a time of day you pray every day. You need a routine that you can enter into. Jordan Peterson may be one of the smartest people, smartest human beings I've ever encountered in my lifetime from Canada. Brilliant guy. And he says, if you want to change your life, he's counseled thousands of people. Get a schedule and stick to it. Don't sleep in all day. Don't stay in your pajamas all day. One day your pajamas seems like, you know, you're, you're, you're having some awesome life. Day two or three, it starts to feel like failure. It really does. Get out of your pajamas and put on some clothes, man. Put on something nice. Act like you got some pride, just a little bit of pride. Fix your hair if you're lucky enough to have it. Don't make me come at you with that. Don't let me catch you being blessed with hair and you're not even going to comb it, wash it, or take care of it.
taking advantage of what I lost years ago. Can't stand by that. You need a prayer time. Just like you need a time to wake up and a time to go to bed, you need a prayer time. Just like you eat three meals a day, you need a prayer time. You've got to establish some consistency in prayer if you want to be successful in the Spirit. It's absolutely necessary. It is a necessity. You cannot be without it. Be sure that you fall at the foot of the cross on your way to the counselor's couch. Every single time. Musicians, you can come. There's no way in the world I'm going to finish this. Malachi bet me that I couldn't preach 30 minutes. Why would you bet me that? Far too long-winded. Forgive me. I'm working on it. I want you to know this. I believe in millennials and Gen Z with all of my heart. I love them. I believe in them. If you're a millennial, raise your hand. If you're Gen Z, raise your If you're born from 1980 to I think it's 2000, you're a millennial. All right? There you go. Some hands are going up now because you didn't know you were a millennial. You're trying to hide from, you know, the shame that people put on you for being a millennial. Don't do that. Embrace it, man. I'm a millennial. I don't look like it. But I am. If you're Gen Z or a millennial, you are our present and our future. You need to know that. You're the most educated generation this world has ever seen. You have more affluence financially if you're living in America than any generation before you. It's a blessing to be where you are in the country that you're in. You need to understand that. God put you here. There's a lot of great countries in the world. We've lived in some amazing places. But God put you here. And I want you to know, I believe in you with all of my heart. I think you're one of the most anointed generations to ever walk the earth. I think you stand on the shoulders of giants. I really do who had fruit thrown at them, who lived in chicken coops because they preached a one God Jesus name tongue-talking message. You need to know that too. That before we could be in a place like this, they were hiding, being attacked, and persecuted, legit persecuted. Not their tweets taken down. Legit persecuted so that we could be where we are because speaking in tongues wasn't always mainstream being apostolic and worshiping with passion being Pentecostal whatever you want to call it used to get people beat up on the daily you need to understand that so we love and honor the greatest generation with all of our heart because they took beatings so that we could have brands on social media and awesome buildings and incredible lighting and great cameras and not be afraid of getting beat up for being apostolic. And we will forever honor that because we wouldn't be here today without it. And we all could name names. We're not going to, I'm not going to, of people that made that possible. But I want this generation to know I love you, I believe in you with all my heart. And I believe the enemy hits the generation he fears the most, the hardest. And we face things today that no one has faced before. Temptations, access to darkness that has never been easier or more ubiquitous. We face that today. Other generations did not have to face that. They were not given the access that we have been given with this or especially a phone. Where now you know, now you're going to know what you really believe and who you really are. Because the access is there for anybody that's got one. 
But the average teenager today has the same level of anxiety as the average mental patient in the 1950s. I'm going to say that again because I want you to hear it. So before we crucify generation, I want you to understand what they're facing and what they're dealing with. Before we throw shade, we need to seek to understand before we make ourselves understood. This generation, scientifically, it is proven the average teen has the same level of anxiety as the average mental patient from the 1950s. Because things are put on them that should not be put on them. They're exposed to things they should not be exposed to. Far too early. Far too young. And it has devastating effects on the psyche. Knowledge has indeed doubled and people are running to and fro on the earth. In 1903, humanity left the ground for the first time in Kitty Hawk. And by 1969, we're standing on the surface of the moon. That's fast. Knowledge doubling, increasing. We live by grace. We live from His presence and from His performance. But the balanced side of that issue was essential for us to understand. I still have a responsibility to partner with His presence and look like what He says about me. We have to live a spirit-led life that represents the character of our Father's house. Consecration doesn't create the supernatural. But consecration means I understand I am a citizen of the supernatural. And I'm not attempting to be double-minded or a dual citizen of heaven while acting like a child of hell in my spare time. Because remember, duplicity and dissonance are the enemy of deepening and doubling. The enemy. How do you get an analytical giant to fall? How do you get an educated population to fall? How do you get a cerebral, analytical culture to fall? You split their mind. You shroud them in duplicity and dissonance. And you just make sure they don't live privately what they profess publicly. That's how. That's the autopsy of an analytical mind. That is the plan that God has come to expose in this house this morning. I do not have time to finish. Could you stand to your feet all over this house this morning?